0: Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Adam Gusewi here with me in Cagliari on the beautiful island of Sardegna. We're here to talk about bridging the gap between tech and neuroscience. So welcome to my podcast, Adam. Thank you. Adam Gazelli is a professor in neurology, physiology, and psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and the founder and executive director of Neuroscape. Uh, he designs, he develops novel brain assessment and optimization tools to impact education, wellness, and medicine practices. He's also the director of a Neuroscape that explores neuroplasticity and how we can optimize our cognitive abilities via engagement with custom-designed video games. He's filed multiple patents based on his research, he's authored over 120 scientific articles and delivered over 600 invited presentations around the world. So Adam, let's kick off by asking you what impact are you actually looking to have?
1: The work that I do now is really focused on how we can develop and then validate new technologies to help improve brain function. And the impact is across many, many different populations. So healthy, young, developing minds, what we might think of as a new approach to education, improving the brain function of everyone at every age when they're healthy, where we might think of it as falling into the wellness category. And then a lot of our work is helping improve cognitive abilities when people have dysfunction. So that'd be a new approach to mental health, neurology, and psychiatry.
0: I know that in one of your talks, you said that we have um, also global huge challenges, of course, on the table, and to resolve these, we we need to also elevate how our minds work, the ability to feel, think, act, and so on, but also perception, wisdom, compassion, Mm -hmm. empathy, and these things. Mm -hmm. How can we do that?
1: You know, I think that the recognition of that as a goal is the first step. Um, Being aware that we have brains that have this phenomenon that we call plasticity. They have the ability to change and improve themselves. And then to also be aware that we haven't prioritized either assessing how our brains work or how we can optimize them. We've worked on optimizing so many different aspects of our biology, notably in the world of physical fitness how strong and powerful and quick and our balance and flexibility. And, you know, we have athletics and sports and rehab, physical rehab, that's quite developed. But when it comes to the abilities of our mind and and you name them, but you know, our attention, our memory our perception, and then how we regulate our emotions and our aggression, how we have empathy, compassion, imagination, and creativity and wisdom is something that we just haven't prioritized improving our education system has really focused on transferring information content, but not improving how the brain processes information. And on the medical side, when someone has a deficit in one of those abilities, like let's say depression, anxiety, or dementia, we give medications through small molecules, what we call drugs, which don't have the selectivity to improve those abilities. And so we wind up with just as many effects as there are side effects. And so, We need a new system, and that's really what I've been uh, devoting myself to, as well as multiple teams, both my research lab is, as you mentioned, Neuroscape, which is an academic center, but also companies that I've developed. And our approach is to think about how we can improve brain function, not through giving a molecule, but through the creation of an experience. And we know that our brain responds to experience. That's how plasticity works. It changes itself, the brain at every level the structure, the chemistry, the function of the brain, all in response to experiences. We've been using experiences for thousands of years to improve brain function. I mean, the classic example are the contemplative practices and traditions of mindfulness and meditation. What we have tried to do is to take that idea, the concept of experience as a way of improving our brain function, and then think about a way of delivering it in a manner that's very reproducible, and very consistent, and also very accessible. So meditation as great as it may be is not accessible to everyone. You don't have access to a great meditation leader and it really matters. Who's teaching you and the environment and the context that you're in. That's an advantage that drugs have had is that they're sort of always delivered the same way for all the negatives and challenges that they do have. They do have that as an asset. And so the idea of almost a hybrid model, how do we take an experience and deliver it in a drug like manner is where we've been looking to technology. How do we create these interactive experiences that are adaptive and personalized to an individual, very accessible and targeted, and can be uh, delivered anywhere, and also tested in randomized controlled trials? So that's sort of the big picture. How do we create experiential treatments to improve brain function?
0: Because of course, for example, elderly people that tend to get more and more isolated, at least in a westernized world, and they even don't get to you know be with their close family members that often and so on, you can see this kind of less engagement, less need of that person somehow Mm -hmm. in a social environment, how that degrades. So in a way, we might talk about tools or or ways of engaging that kind of person to stimulate the areas in their brain, right? Mm -hmm. In order to be more alive and more healthy Mm -hmm. uh, in general. So it's like a drug-free prescription (laughs) in the future, right?
1: Exactly on the medical side we are what we describe as creating digital medicine Mm. as opposed to uh, pharmaceutical medicines which deliver molecules that's how they work we have digital medicines that deliver experiences as treatments and that's what we're trying to create no one has actually done that yet in a way that's FDA approved and prescribable and that's really the direction we're going and there's so many different types of goals that you can have all those different aspects of cognition that I listed could be improved by an interactive experience. It's just how do you create the type of engagement that activates the brain in such a way that improves that and then how do you make it fun enough that people will engage in it for a long period of time. Um, So that's the challenge and that's where we've really looked not just to interactive experiences but to the art and music and story and, and reward that goes into video game play.
0: So we might see these kind of new types of medicine then, uh, to treat, uh, for <clears throat> example, I don't know, Parkinson and, and schizophrenia and, and
1: yeah, the conditions that we're studying right now on the medical side include attention deficit disorder, autism, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease. All of those are ongoing research studies. And then there are more on the way.
0: And how much time do you think uh, there is before any of this is happening for real?
1: We are very, very close. So when I say we, which is very confusing because I wear lots of hats. When I say we in this case, I'm talking about Achille Interactive, which is a company that I started based on my research eight years ago, and Achille, so where my where neuroscape is essentially like an incubator of new technologies i design it we develop it we do the basic deep dive research studies to figure out if there's anything there we file patents behind all that technology and then if we find something interesting it has to leave the lab you can't build products inside academic research centers and so i started a company called achille interactive which has an exclusive license to the patent owned by my university, which I am the inventor of and Achille has been building way better games as treatments. Um, The study that we just reported in December as completed is known as a phase three clinical trial. And so that means it's a very large multi-site trial, placebo controlled blinded. This was for children that are diagnosed with ADHD and that, uh, that trial was successful. In itself, it was a first of its kind in terms of a research study of that depth and breadth using a video game as a treatment. Um, we are now in the process of filing a proposal for, uh, to the FDA to have that approved as a class two medical device to treat pediatric ADHD. No one has ever had anything like this approved, so we don't know exactly how long it'll take, but our side effect profile is you know, really almost non-existent. And our effects were quite impressive. And so we would hope that by early 2019, we'll have approval and then move to market with this type of treatment.
0: Mm -hmm. But do you think it would be interesting also to integrate this into the education system? And how could that be?
1: So Achille is focused clearly on healthcare because they're a startup. They have to pick a focus and stick to it, as all entrepreneurs know. And so we are really devoted at bringing that technology through the FDA as new types of treatments to be in many cases, like for ADHD, the only competition that exists for drugs. There is nothing else approved by the FDA. That being said, back at Neuroscape, which is the academic part of my life, we are interested in these tools as potential benefits to anyone. And so we have a pretty advanced now, over the last two and a half years, education program, where we moved our technology into classrooms. Healthy eight to 12 year olds. Actually, not necessarily all healthy. We're pretty agnostic to if they have a clinical diagnosis. We record that information, but if they have Mm -hmm. dyslexia or ADHD, we just note it. But we basically want to study everyone. Uh, First, understand their cognitive abilities, as I mentioned earlier, very quickly. Not only don't we try as a society, a global society, not only don't we try to improve cognition, but we don't really assess it either. And so we don't usually know the cognitive abilities of a young person unless they think they have a learning disability or some type of developmental challenge. So the first step is to understand the cognitive profile of each young person. And we have a assessment tool on an iPad that we created to do that. We've been building that for four years called ACE. And then once we see where their different cognitive abilities lie, even if they don't have a clinical condition, then we have them play one of our games at home as homework and see if we can improve those abilities. So we do have an education program and it's possible that some of our technology might not even go the clinical route when they leave Neuroscape, but go to either a new company that I might start or a company that's existing where that tech will go down a complete education route and not a medical route.
0: Mm. that would be really interesting Mm -hmm. in in a way when you tell me about all these things it feels that you know we're in a hurry to solve things so you you would like fda and all kinds of uh, organizations out there to kind of speed up the process for christ's sake have Mm -hmm. some priority on certain things in order to get it out right
1: yeah
0: it must be frustrating the same way no
1: yeah i mean it takes patience uh to change the world i suppose uh (laughs) these institutions and these systems are hundreds of years old and they're very embedded, both education and the medical system. And you know, the pharmaceutical industry is a multi multi multi-billion dollar, maybe close to a trillion dollar global enterprise. And you can't just change it rapidly. It's just the reality. So you have to go through all the steps, diligently, rigorously and not give up and to change it. Now, once we do succeed, um, and we have a new type of medicine, our goal is to change the system itself, not just change the treatments, to find ways to prove uh, things more rapidly. But you know we built a system like the one that exists in medicine because a lot of these treatments are pretty dangerous. Um, they have significant side effects, you know, even fatality in some treatments. And so you know it was built largely to protect people from the side effects and the negative consequences of treatments, which are pretty devastating to people. Once we have treatments like the one we're developing, which have really minimal side effects, we think we could move more rapidly through efficacy studies. So that's the goal. First step is to get inside the system, and the second step would be to change it. Mm
0: -hmm. So if you would be approached by, let's say, a pharmaceutical industry company, and uh, to say, okay, we. We're interested, we'd like to buy this and integrate that into our portfolio of of services and things
1: we do and
0: so on. Would you even be interested?
1: Well, we do have lots of relationships right now financially with pharmaceutical companies. So Achille is of great interest to them. Uh, This idea if there is a digital revolution of medicine that is in the process of being born, I think they don't want to miss it. We've decided for pediatric ADHD, at least in the US, we are going that route alone. We're not partnering with pharmaceutical company. That was a big, big decision, big board level decision of, of how you go about launching an entirely new product class into the medical domain. And what, we, what was the reason? Uh, just because you know, given that this is our first product and given the need being so great Uh, there are over 2 million children in the U S alone with a diagnosis of ADHD that are not taking any treatment at all because ADHD is a condition where there are so many untreated children. It made sense and other, you know, business reasons to go that route alone, at least in the U S for other conditions where the patients are being treated with another medication that we're looking to have an adjunct treatment along with, then it may make more sense to partner. And those are the decisions that we're trying to make right now.
0: Is there any reason you think that the number of kids with ADHD uh, has increased?
1: I think there are two factors that are really hard to separate when looking at the data, which is a large increase in numbers. Some of it, and it's not just for ADHD, maybe for autism, dyslexia as well, is just increased awareness and sensitivity of parents and doctors and teachers uh, when looking at the behavior of young people. And so that's part of it. Another is that the diagnostic criteria that we use as physicians to create these labels is changing all the time. We don't have very well-defined biomarkers like we do for diabetes or you know high cholesterol hypertension and so we're constantly unfortunately reinventing what we even consider adhd from a a clinical diagnostic point of view the other reality that evidence alludes to but it's hard to prove definitively in a causal manner is that attention abilities are changing Um, that potentially because of an impact of technology, information technology on young developing minds, how they interact with the very rapid rewards of video games and not just that, but Twitter and Facebook and other social media and the internet in general, all of that technology is changing how their brains develop and maybe creates challenges in terms of sustained attention. And it's not just children. You know, we hear just as many complaints about Difficulties with attention from adults, and it all might not be a clinical level. And that's another complicated thing is that attention, depression, anxiety, these things are on a spectrum. And I mean, everyone suffers some elements of impairment in those abilities at different times in their lives. And so that's part of the complexity of trying to uh, understand you know, how these numbers of people change over time.
0: How do you think that social media in our daily life has influenced our brain if it has?
1: Well, it's complex and it's not well understood by research yet. I would say that from my own work on attention and distraction and multitasking in a laboratory setting. So not using social media as a research tool. Just looking at how our brains respond to being distracted to having multiple tasks. We know that there is a degradation in performance pretty much across every domain when you are not focusing solely on your main goal. And we see this in the brain. We see this in performance metrics. It exists in perception in decision-making memory. All are degraded by what we call globally interference. And so if you are trying to finish an assignment, or engage in a conversation with a loved one or drive your car on the road or uh, pay attention in class and you're constantly redirecting your attention to another source of information. Maybe it's a website, maybe it's a social media site. It will degrade your performance. And if you get in a habit of doing that and it becomes a cognitive style where you just interrupt yourself all the time it will have negative consequences.
0: Sure. But going back to you, Adam, what would you consider as your passion or, or and that then eventually leads you to your purpose?
1: Well, I mean, I am driven by the desire to truly make a difference. Um, it sounds sort of corny to say change the world, but it's sort of what I want to do, and always have. I was just trying to find out what that was. and it was originally, my when I was a child, my attraction was to astronomy and space and the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And then it moved to the brain, which to me almost feel exactly the same, just these incredibly infinitely complex systems, one outside and one inside. Most of my career has been focused on the aging brain, How, which is how I probably wound up at a longevity meeting. How do we um, change in terms of our processing abilities as we get older in terms of how our brains work but that wasn't enough to change anything you know i think it was interesting research that i was uh, generating about how the brain decreases its cognitive capacities as we get older but it wasn't helping anyone and so what i've been doing over the last decade creating new technologies and then understanding if they work and how they work and who they work best in to actually help people directly is my dream. It's how I finally get to do something to really help people. And we're really very, very close to doing that.
0: What would you say were your transformational points in your life that have influenced you the most so far?
1: Well, one of the things that influenced me a lot, although it wasn't apparent, is moving to San Francisco. Uh, so i'm from new york city which is Mm -hmm. a great city i love new york and i never thought i would leave and san francisco and the west coast i went to berkeley for a while was interesting for many reasons Uh, the west coast has a lot of appeal Uh, but i believe now in retrospect that being immersed in the technology community watching you know i have friends that have started companies Mm -hmm. like twitter and uber and instagram and watching that type of, I guess, fearless innovation has really inspired me and allowed me to push myself to see how neuroscience can be different than it has been, where it's largely been academic and not translational, not getting into people's lives in a beneficial way. And so I think that that's probably an aspect that I wasn't aware of. is just my environment and how I became part of what Silicon Valley is.
0: Are there any other reflections from these experiences of these people that you just mentioned and so on that you also observed them and um, Learned what not to do
1: well, I think that One of the things I observed and I won't comment on anyone in particular here or any company in particular is sometimes there's too much focus on the technology itself that it's fun to create stuff like a kid you feel like when you're building new things Uh, But if you don't slow down and take the time to appreciate or at least consider how it can have a negative impact on people uh, you wind up making mistakes and then apologizing um, for them. And there's some things that are just shouldn't be apologies. They should be permissions or things that you ask for up front and make those decisions during the development phase. I think that Silicon Valley is learning that lesson in general Um, not just me is that. We need to consider how new technologies actually enhance what makes us human and not diminish us. And there has not been a lot of consideration for that in my mind. And that's something that we spend an exhaustive amount of time. I mean, we're building the technologies to help people, not just for communication or entertainment purposes. But even there, we still think very carefully about negative consequences that might not be so obvious.
0: And uh, for companies and organizations and so on is there any long-term formula that you believe in
1: you know some of them are almost like silicon valley cliches now but they are valuable because they're not things that we tend to do in academics or think about in academics. so like for example the willingness or the openness to fail academics has no tolerance for fail. you can't get your grants you can't get tenure your papers won't get published with negative results, everything has to be a success and it creates a lot of complexities in our field. In Silicon Valley and and the tech world, there's almost a little bit of pride that comes along with, I tried and it didn't work, that company failed or this idea didn't work so we scratched it and we pivoted and sometimes it's overstated but it is a psychological difference to say, this might fail because it's a little crazy but if we succeed, it'll be amazing. And so we should try it. You know, we usually, both in our research and in our company endeavors, take two paths simultaneously. One, which is a lot higher risk, but greater reward. And the other, that's a lot more likely to succeed, but less exciting. I actually even call that like an insurance policy. And so we do both of those, hoping you know, for the big win but knowing that we won't fail completely and lose our entire entity if we don't succeed in in the high risk project. So we usually do both simultaneously. The other thing that's also a little cliche, but is very salient in my world is attention to the team and the people. In addition to just the ideas, I spend an exhaustive amount of time building community, finding the right people, That's so important. And I've seen mistakes made where more attention is paid to the larger business model and the technology itself and the investors, and then the team is not cohesive and they don't have a a single vision that unites them. They're not friendly to each other, internally competitive. There's lots of reasons why I've seen companies and academic labs fail that have nothing to do with the ideas, but really about the people.
0: How do you find those people normally?
1: People that are really driven and connect with the ideas that we're working on find us. Uh, we're pretty public. I give an incredible number of talks, as you mentioned, constantly on in media and podcasts like this because I want the word out of what we do, and then I hope that you know we find the, those people or they find us more more likely. And that's been the majority of ways that we've developed our team.
0: If you would you know, dream a little bit and think about all kinds of doors out there that are open to you and that you have all resources that you can imagine, what would you then immediately innovate or change, You know, be it in your part of the world or elsewhere?
1: Well, the biggest resource that challenge that we have right now more so at Neuroscape because it's an academic lab that doesn't create products and doesn't have financial investment than in Achille, which has both of those things is engineering talent. You know, most of the engineering talent in our neck of the woods in San Francisco works at companies like Google and Apple and, you know, massive salaries. And we don't have that opportunity given our funding. So people that have really you know, amazing skills on signal processing and machine learning. We'd love to advance our artificial intelligence goals. These are really, really hard for us to do because a lot of those people just won't work in academics. Uh, So I'd love to really embrace and, you know, in in many ways reinvent what we think about as AI. I always say, what better use of there is AI than to enhance H.I human intelligence and there's a lot we can do with that technology in the interactive media experiences that we create so that's the domain that I would push on if we had more resources
0: and um, leaders however you define those do you have any particular you know advice that you want to share
1: people that are like starting their own endeavors companies
0: yeah uh, anybody who has actually have you know, in a way for good reason following a following.
1: Yeah, I would say you know, just take those chances. You'll never succeed if you don't dive in and just really follow your instincts. It's scary, but I've seen so many people just wait and wait for that perfect opportunity to come and you know, opportunities don't often come you make them. And so you have to build your own path and not be afraid to do that.
0: Mm. <laughs> you followed that with success, so.
1: <laughs>
0: and um, if you would give you know some advice to yourself, let's like ten fifteen years ago or so, what would that be?
1: I guess it's along the same lines. You know, just be fearless. Uh, those are the type of inspirations that I've had, uh, where you just don't get hung up in all the what ifs, and really. Just allow yourself to follow your dreams. I would tell my, my younger self to go ahead, go for it. You know, it doesn't mean to be irresponsible. I think that that advice of being fearless and aggressive and, and not hesitating is sometimes coupled with it's okay to be irresponsible. And that's not what I mean by it. It's also appropriate to be thoughtful and to be patient and to make sure that what you're doing is helping people and not hurting them. So I would say be forward thinking and don't wait for the opportunities to come. Um, Be fearless, but also be thoughtful.
0: Good advice. What do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now?
1: This idea of like the double bottom line, which we talk about a lot in our area in the world, uh, How do you make a profit, which is what you need to do? I'm not denying that. How do you get revenue at a high enough level that you're sustainable, that you're returning an investment, um, which is what you have to do, Um, and also do some good in the world and help people? And there's a way to do them both, but it takes thought and it takes readjustments along the way to make sure that you're doing that. But I feel like every company should be thinking along those lines, like we just have each of us individually have such a short time here on this planet and our ability to make an impact is limited. And if we don't think about how do we both make money for ourselves and our investors, and also how do we help humanity, then I feel like it's misdirected
0: so true. And what do you think? An even bigger question. What do you think the world needs most at this time?
1: Ah, <sighs> Well, <laughs> that's a big question. Yeah. I feel that we need to think, maybe this is a good sort of loop back to where we started. The world needs to have people who value their minds and how their brains operate at a higher level. Uh, we need to evolve our minds just like we've evolved our technology. We can't just hope that it goes along for the ride uh, because you know things happen that are negative, like what we see now, an increase in attention deficits and memory challenges with older adults and depression and anxiety are climbing in children. I find my view is that this is occurring because we have not prioritized the evolution of the human mind. How we think, how we make decisions, our imagination, how we care about each other. Compassion, empathy are things that I just mentioned, you know, fleeting comments or they're made to think that that's woo-woo, new agey, not like Mm -hmm. core values that anyone in, you know, the operating world would, would maintain. But if we do not embrace those aspects of being human, we will just continue to have bigger and bigger problems as we as we advance technologically
0: Mm. so i've discovered this website of yours come wonder and um beautiful photos that you've taken over the years of nature yeah is it just fantastic i was just impressed is this something that you spend also some time on even today
1: yeah so 20 years ago i discovered nature photography pretty randomly i never did anything artistic in my life and my nature exposure was very limited having grown up in New York City and it changed my life completely and it's something that I do. I have my camera equipment here uh-huh. in Sardinia. I'm actually doing a shoot tomorrow. Oh. Uh, so when I travel around the world to give lectures, I always couple in some nature time to do photography. And I used to have a business called Wanderings where I sold fine art prints. Now I have a website come wander.com where I largely share it. Um, but To me, it's the same feeling as I get from science. It's an exploration of nature, what's beautiful about it and how it's organized. And uh, so it feels the same to me as doing lab work, is getting out in the field with a camera and watching a sunrise. So, yeah, it's still a big part of my life.
0: Mm -hmm. And how come you you, what kicked off that photography
1: idea? I was uh, reading a book by a photographer called Galen Rowell, who passed away now. He's uh, color nature photographer, but one of the early ones, like soon after Ansel Adams, and also like a very famous mountaineer climb like Yosemite and peaks all over the world. And he has a book called Mountain Light um, that I found at a family member's house, my uncle's house. And it's just a beautiful book. It's like a, an amazing photograph of nature and then a full page with descriptions of the natural experience, but also the technical details of photography, the cognitive insights that were going on in his mind during it. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. I just, I never knew that this existed. And my uncle went up to his bedroom and brought down, He's he was more of a camera collector really than a photographer in a lot of ways and brought down a, a Nicromat a 1968 from the year I was born, a completely manual camera and gave me a pack of 36 rolls of film and said, go ahead, learn how to do that. And I was living in Manhattan at the time. So Central Park was my closest access to nature. And I started, and I always say, I got very lucky on my first roll of film. I shot this amazing sunset and everyone's like, wow, you're really talented. And I was like, I am? And, and then it took me a long time until I took another good picture. But I was motivated from that. And then later that year, I spent six weeks in New Zealand where I camped out every single night and started this idea of wanderings where you just immerse yourself in nature and, and capture those moments. And that's sort of the beginning.
0: <laughs> and this was before university? Right?
1: This was when I was in medical school. But this is uh, 20 years ago. Um,
0: yeah. Wonderful to have these kind of extra environments and spaces to go to okay so thank you so much adam uh you're just wonderful and and um, you're working on such an important mission for all of us so thank you for that thanks for being here my pleasure thanks for sharing so to find out more about adam and his work you can head to neuroscape.ucsf.edu and of course don't miss this um nature photography at go wonder and you will also find all links and show notes on corporate slash podcast remember to subscribe to the podcast on itunes and Acast, and i truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact thanks for listening and until next time live with purpose and remember to unplug ciao